reading text is from John 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Happy to be joining you guys fresh off the announcements. Those were great. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Heavenly Father, um, I just ask for your help right now, Lord, as we've already been asking all morning, but I just pray that you would protect us in these next moments from distraction, from discouragement and despair, um, just anything that would uh, rob us of the opportunity to hear the, the gentle whisper of your spirit through this story. I pray you would highlight the things that need to be highlighted and uh, whatever's uh, unhelpful that it would fall away. And I just ask for your grace to cover us again. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The miracle at the wedding at Cana. Uh, This is the first public sign attributed to Jesus. Um, It's recorded in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist makes a declaration about Jesus that gives us a window into what Jesus has come for. This will be familiar to many of you. But John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards them and he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a summary statement by John the Baptist of Jesus' ministry and mission, what he's come into the world to do. Jesus has come to bring forgiveness, redemption, and renewal to the world. Now, if that's your mission, why on earth do you choose as the beginning of that to do a miracle that extends a party? His mission is to bring forgiveness, redemption, renewal into the world. And his first public sign that he does to demonstrate uh, this ministry is to extend a party by turning about 120 gallons of water into wonderful wine. I came across some pictures this week uh, that I thought were quite impressive, that I thought could have hung in a museum somewhere. Uh, I want to put them up on the screen and see what you, what you think of them. 
It would be awesome if our room was a little darker. We don't have total control over the lighting in middle school 51. Uh, we're, we're still in negotiations for that. But that, this, so yeah, just maybe back and forth between these two for a moment. And you can just begin to see what you think of the, the, the artwork. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does anyone know what these images are? Oh, come on. You guys have the same internet as me? These are photographs uh, from NASA, NASA, NASA's, uh, which is an offshoot of NASA, uh, NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter. Uh, these are storms on the surface of Jupiter. The huge giant gas planet. Look at these lights going out. We got NASA folks in here right now. Let's go back and see that. Oh, look at that. That's so beautiful. These are storms on the surface of Jupiter. Are you kidding me? Look at that. This could be a MoMA. I I saw these images on the Atlantic's photo journal. I guess that's where some of you may have seen them as well. I do check in there from time to time. Apparently anyone can go to that site. Uh, and I began to think about, like, how amazing is it that this was there before we had, the, you know, the telescopic technology, the photo, the, to, to, to see it. Like, this beauty was present before any one of us had the opportunity to lay eyes on it or, or, or appreciate it. For centuries, no one saw the storms on the surface of Jupiter. It, it was, until very recently, undiscovered beauty. Now, it was present. It was there, but we didn't discover it. I got other pictures if you want to leave those off, NASA. Um, or perhaps, perhaps you've, seen, you've, seen these, you've seen these guys. You know who this is? You know about these guys? These are the birds of paradise. Thank you, someone who used to work at the Natural History Museum. Not going to name names, Armstead. These are still shots from the documentary uh, Planet Earth 2, uh, which is out from the, from the BBC. And this is right in the middle of the mating ritual for the birds of paradise, deep in the heart of the jungle in New Guinea. So before BBC or whoever was able to fly super HD drone cameras into the middle of the jungle, how many people had seen the mating rituals of the birds of paradise? Like right after these birds swipe right, we fly in the camera. That's, that's an internet joke. I just want you guys to know I know about the culture, okay? <laughs> Bird privacy reasons aside, this is amazing. We're seeing this. And never mind beauty. It's not just beauty. Sometimes it's obscurity. Next picture. That's a conehead cricket. Look at his face. This guy's been dying for his, his BBC selfie for so long. He's like, guys, I'm fun to be around. No one knew. I'm in the middle of the jungle in Costa Rica. All right. What's the point? <laughs> I got one person over here that's, that's tracking with me. Um, think about the beauty that is present in our world. That's not, being, that's not being witnessed right now. That's just, in a sense, there for its own sake. No one's laying eyes on it right at this moment. These, these, these pictures were a, a spark to me of how much extravagant beauty there is in the world that's not, that's not being seen right now. There are flowers blossoming on the top of the mountains. 
There is a whale calf and her mother swimming in the depths of the sea. There's a sun coming through the trees in a forest and it's falling on a waterfall and catching the light just right as it comes over over the edge. And no, no one's there to take it in. There is more beauty, more extravagant beauty in our world than anyone or all of us could take in. Conehead cricket aside. Now, no matter what we believe, we have the opportunity and capacity to enjoy that extravagant beauty that is all around us. But I was considering these images and, and just that, that phenomenal just thought of how much is going on, even more than we could possibly take in. And realizing that across our world, there's, there's different approaches to even how to appreciate the extravagant beauty of the world. I'll have, I'll have a confession that won't be surprising to you given the vocation I've chosen, uh, but the sort of philosophical underpinnings that are under a lot of our sort of uh, modern culture make, make, me, make me sad, uh, specifically like the philosophical under, underpinnings of secular humanism, that basically like... The, the natural material is, is all there is. And, and, and I think just in the same way that religious people can be pompous and arrogant, you, you read the philosophies of secular humanism sometimes, and they're really self-congratulatory about taking the world as it really is. But I still find them to be a huge bummer. Uh, now, of course, you don't have to think about the philosophical underpinnings of, of a world without God to live a normal life without considering God. But the, the underpinnings are important every now and then to dredge up and have a look at. We, uh, I'll give you Bertrand Russell. And we hit this a little bit in Advent because, you know, Christmas and Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell just go so well together. But this is what he says. Listen to this. We are about the outcome of, ac- of, accidental, of an accidental collocation of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins. Thank you very much, Conehead Cricket, for your time. You're no longer needed. Or take, uh, maybe you've read some Richard Dawkins or, or, or heard him de- sort of debated, Cour- courageously stoic Richard Dawkins says this, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process, which Darwin discovered and which we know now is the explanation for the existence and par- apparently purposeful form of all life, has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. These poor fellas. I mean, come on. Are we just here to pass along our genetic code? Right? Dawkins is famous for saying, you're not, you're, you're, you're not a creature with a soul that has et- uh, eternity pressed on its heart. You're just a feisty strand of DNA trying to make it. Are we just trying to, to see our species continue and pass along our best genetic code until we invent self-driving cars and they drive us into the sea of abyss and that's the end? If so, then I think there is a whole lot of wasted beauty in the world. If that's, if that's the philosophical underpinning that's true, that sort of undergirds our world, then there's a lot of wasted beauty in the world that doesn't necessarily seem to have a, a, a point connected to passing on our DNA alone. 
that we're just here to, for survival of the fittest and, and, and the rest of the stuff is just things that we've made up. In that case, there's a lot of wasted beauty. What about the Sistine Chapel? What about Van Gogh's Starry Night, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, My Morning Jacket's third record? People, check it. Richard Dawkins' nature may have no plans for the future, but the products of that nature have wonderful plans indeed. We, have, we make incredible plans. We, we lay out paintings. We, we are laughing and swapping stories in, in pubs. We are, we are, we're putting murals together. We're writing haikus. We're composing bass lines and, and dreaming up new companies and arranging flowers in a vase and doing all this stuff that not, doesn't necessarily seem to have a connection to the underpinnings that Dawkins highlights, that we're just here to pass on our, 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 our genetic code. What if instead of that, And of course my cards are on the table, but what if instead of that we have a God behind this astonishingly fine-tuned creation that is wildly creative, that is full of love, that is heartbroken over our pain and death, over our sins and wars, but is willing to step in and to repair and to heal? What if there is this God who could have decided that we get nourishment from two pellets a day that have all the vitamins and, and nutrients that we need and instead... This God gave us taste buds. And so we sit down for a family meal with one another and we enjoy the the, the smells and the sights and the senses and we take it all in. We throw feasts. We are are a race of people who throws feasts because we don't get our nourishment from just two pellets a day. A God who could have had us propagate the species. He could have had us have babies through some elaborate handshake. Instead, he's given us the gift and the beauty of sex. What a thing, right? To, 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 like it could have happened anyway, and it happens in these elaborate, beautiful. This is a God who, who set up the week and demanded that people take time to relax and, and hang out. This is a God who, in the very rhythm of how time is going to pass, declares Sabbath. I want you to hang out and swap stories with one another. I want you to lay in a hammock and drink lemonade. I want you to rest. And as a matter of fact, when he does his incredible work of redemption with his people in, in this, the first act in the, old, in the old covenant, he brings them out of slavery in Egypt. He says, I want you to remember every, every great act of redemption that I've done. And every year I want you to throw, throw a feast in honor of it. I think God's telling a better story. And I think that's the type of God who chooses as his first miracle to show up at a party and take six stone basins that are usually used for washing up and turn them into a fine, vintage, full-bodied red. It says something about God. John tells us in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first sign. What happens because of the sign is the glory of God is revealed and his disciples believe in him. The first sign, Jesus certainly performs many miracles in his ministry. And he, he shows us in those miracles what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes breaking in and is accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. But, but this particular miracle is called a sign. And I want you just to consider that for a moment. What are we to make of that? How is that different from your average sort of ordinary miracle that, that, that Jesus does? The Gospel of John um, 
he records seven signs, as a matter of fact, that Jesus performs. And the Greek word that's used to describe miracles is dynamis. And the Greek word that's used to describe sign here is, is uh, simeon. And, and um, any miracle is an outpouring of God's, God's power. It's, it's like what I said earlier, that, that it's showing what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes on earth as it is in heaven. A, a sign is, is used to indicate a revelation of God's character. It is a miracle, but it's also a revelation of God's character that was not seen and focused before. There's something about God that's being demonstrated in these seven signs that, God, that, that John hangs the, the gospel of, uh, uh, his gospel of Jesus on that are important for revealing the very nature and character of God. This was the first sign through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Just as a quick reminder, I, I want us to be the type of church that when we fly past words like d- discipleship or sanctification or glory, that we don't just check out our minds because we've heard those type of church words before and we don't really think about what we mean. What, what are we saying when it says that, 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 that his glory was revealed? Glory is a word that goes great in songs. Uh, it's something that we almost exclusively use in church or rare sports situation. Um, Glory is a revelation of God's character. Glory is, we glorify God. That doesn't mean that we give something God, give something to God that he didn't have. We give him glory. It's that we're, we're, we are celebrating the revelation of his character. When God is glorified, God is seen for the great God that he is. We celebrate that. That is what it is to, to, to glorify God. It's not to invent something new about him, but to affirm something about God that's always been true, but it's coming into focus so that we can see it clearly. When the Apostle John says that Jesus' motive here was a sign which revealed his glory, he isn't saying, listen, God wanted for all time to know that weddings are the one place it's okay to get tipsy. Uh, He he was revealing something about his character. It's not just that God wanted to be there and celebrate a marriage, although that's important. He was revealing something about his character, something that's always been true. So I want to look at it carefully for just a few moments and see see the details of the story, let them kind of wash over our imagination and consider them. And then the question I want in your mind is, if this is a sign and a sign reveals something, it's, it's bringing something into focus about the character of God, what are we seeing brought into focus? Okay, and, and, and my, my, what I think that we're gonna see is that as you move through the story closely, um, the details in the context actually help to reveal some of the beauty that, that's present in this story. Uh, during my first year in New York City, uh, I, I didn't have a job yet. I wasn't sure what, what I was going to do. My training was in theater. So I thought what I'll do is I'll write a play. Uh, it will become a hit. Um, and then I'll, you know, off the, you know, sort of the excess royalties of that play, I'll figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And my idea uh, for my play was to write a story that takes place after Vincent Van Gogh's death. And it's a conversation between his family trying to make sense of, of the genius and the insanity of Vincent Van Gogh's life. So I read Irving Stone's 1934 biography of of Van Gogh. Uh, It's called Lust for Life. And I learned so much. There were so many details of Van Gogh's life that I knew nothing about before the book. Uh, Like, for instance, that he spent a a good period of time living as a missionary in Germany to a poor mining community. Uh, During that time, he he was incredibly poor himself. He wove himself into the fabric uh, of of that community and was there to, to to share and experience the love of God with this community. He basically lived on black coffee and crust of bread, trying to match the rhythm of the community. Now, um, 
Anyone could walk through a museum and see this, this famous Van Gogh picture. This is called Sorrowing Old Man uh, or At Eternity's Gate. And he, he paints this picture and, and like, right, a, studi- a student of the Impressionist painting of the time could talk to you about the colors that he's chosen and the brush strokes. There's a lot of detail that without knowing anything about the context of the slumped over man, you can still appreciate. But I think there's something in the context of why he painted this that draws out even more, even more beauty. This is Van Gogh, a man who's agonized with this community of miners, who's who's been living in their midst. He saw an eternal connection to them. He saw their humble but very alive faith in in, in this mining community. And he saw them as they sat quietly in prayer in the early morning before they were going to go and spend the rest of their day away from the sunlight, digging through the soot in the mine. He saw them in his imagination at the very gates of heaven before a loving God, and he paints this. So now when you've read his biography, when you know some of the story, you don't just see this painting again for how it advanced the impressionism of his day for the artistic style, though it's incredible. It's a masterpiece, but the story behind this man slumped over, crying out to God in humility before he goes underground for the rest of the day. Or take Starry Night, his most iconic painting. Right, he did. He did so many of these in in a, in a, in a fury, overlooking overlooking this town, and he's in a fight for his own sanity at this at this point in his career, and and he's looking for the light of heaven, for the light of God to be present in the world. And it's interesting that you see he had begun to give up hope that he could see it at all, even though he had been a missionary. Now he's begun to give up hope that he could see it at all in the church. That the light of God didn't seem to be present in the institution. So you can look, you see the light in the sky, and you see that it's in the town and some of the buildings, but in the church right in the middle, there's no light. And you start to see, once you understand the story of where this man was at and what he was beginning to wrestle with, and that he's in a struggle for his sanity, the picture's amazing on its own, right? You stroll through MoMA, and you see that, and it's like a masterpiece. But then you, you understand even more of the human detail and beauty is drawn out when you know the context. And I think the same thing is true in this story that we see of Jesus. It's beautiful on its own. The miracle itself is amazing, but the details help us see something that you don't get at first glance. And the first detail that I want us to notice in the story of, of Jesus, this first sign at the, at the wedding at Cana, is that it is a picture of new creation. Jesus' mission is restoring relationship with God and with people. It is beginning, we, we talk about like, it is beginning an entirely new way of being human. It is, it is starting a new, a new creation. Jesus is the firstborn of that new creation. And so you go back to the beginning in Genesis. At the very beginning, the, one of the first things God does is he presides over a wedding between Adam and Eve. There's this almost humorous encounter where Adam can't find a a, a mate that's appropriate after looking through the rest of creation. And so God presides over this wedding between Adam and Eve at the beginning. And then you scan all the way through to Revelation. There's a wedding at the beginning. You go all the way through to Revelation. And and, and one of the last pictures you see is Jesus and the bride of Christ, the church, at a wedding feast. This marriage imagery, this wedding imagery is incredibly important. And in both, 
in both pictures, in Genesis and in Revelation, the, 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 the wedding is abundant. There's a river of, of life flowing through in Eden. There's fruits and vegetables of, of every kind, effortlessly budding. Literally, the word is, is, is teeming. It is overrun with extravagant beauty. There's the warm sun. There's the cool shade. This is more than an environment where human life can flourish or, or, or can be sustained and survive. It is, it is an environment where human life can flourish. In the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation, there's rejoicing, there's dancing, laughing, fine linen, bright and clean to clothe you, a feast that will never end. A wedding feast is the most commonly used imagery for what heaven is like in the scriptures. A a wedding feast. Maybe you have an image of heaven as a cloudy place where where people get sort of swept off to one day. That's more of a, a vision from Plato than from Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to sweep people off to heaven where they play harps on a cloud. He's trying to bring heaven to earth and he's saying, this is what it'll be like. It'll be like all your friends and family got together around this huge feast and celebrated love and redemption and salvation and swapped stories and it just went on and on. Jesus shows up to recreate what's been lost and at the very beginning, his first sign could have been anything. He presides over a wedding. The setting itself is an announcement. Another important detail that you might not know without some level of first century context is there was huge potential for shame here. If you've heard this story talked about before, this has probably been mentioned. But there was huge potential for shame going on when Jesus decides to do this miracle. Now, at every wedding, I, I, one of the privileges of my job is to stand with people as they make their covenant vows to one another. And I can tell you this flat out. Every wedding has potential for embarrassment. It is, it is, it is there. I, I'll tell you one of my worst. I once was standing there. I, we had, we hadn't had a rehearsal for this wedding and I, I'm moving through quickly. I had copied and pasted my wedding sort of uh, program onto my iPad so that I could have it there. And I left out communion. So I get done. The, the th- first thing the couple's supposed to do after they make their vows is go to communion together. And I'm like, now you can kiss your bride and go on down the aisle. No one moves. And I was like, or we could stay here and talk about more stuff. And then the, the bride's like, and I was like, oh, just slumped over. Felt absolutely horrible. Uh, I was like, they, I was like I, they, they gave me a, a fee for doing the wedding. I was like, please take this back. I'm so horrified. I can't believe I forgot this. Every wedding has potential for embarrassment. Your family members might drink too much and dance in ways you wish they wouldn't. I, I, honest, I once knew a family, their signature move, there's seven of them, was just to get in the middle and do jumping jacks together. Like... Our family in a circle jumping jacks. That's not a great wedding move. Let's cross that off, okay? But what was at stake at this wedding was so much more than those minor embarrassments. There was risk of shame. A first century Jewish wedding was such an elaborate affair. They often took three to four years to plan. The reception would last seven days. It would last a full week. When Mary turns to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. She's not just saying like, oh, people, the party's going to be out here. Someone's going to need to run to the bodega. They're saying this family is at profound risk of humiliation because they've invited the community and they're, they're supposed to have planned well enough that they could sustain the resources necessary to keep this party going. The whole village would have been on the guest list. It was the groom's family's responsibility to provide food and drink. There was no keeping a shortage like this quiet. Everyone would have known it was a serious offense. I know this is like kind of bizarre sounding, but in this context, it was common for wedding gifts to be taken back by the guests if the food and wine ran low. Stevie C on the base. 
But why does Mary care so much? There's potential for shame for the, for, for, for the groom's family, but there's potential for shame for Mary as well. It says in the text a little detail that Mary got the invitation, and then it follows and says, and Jesus and his disciples were invited. It's like, Mary's like, guys, do you mind if I'm like plus 13 on this one? The story implies that Mary had gotten the wedding invitation and included Jesus' disciples, but, but she shows up and gift-giving was equally a sacred part of the feast as well. Guests were to give careful thought to their gifts so that they brought honor to the couple. Now, if you show up with 14 extra people, you are not a part of the solution. You are part of the wine shortage problem. So when she does like her best Jewish mother to Jesus, and she goes up to him, she's like, they don't have any more wine. He's like, woman, why are you involving me? And she's like, do what he says. I love that dynamic. She is trying to, to pr- preserve her own family and the family of the wedding from shame, from embarrassment that would have been talked about uh, for weeks and months, perhaps even years to come. Now, in our English translation, it sounds like Jesus is being really rude to his mom. He's like, woman, why do you involve me? That's kind of how we read it. That None of the disrespect in our English translation is present in the original. It's like actually a sign of, of yeah, like just the way you would speak to, to, to your mother. It's, it's totally respectful. So don't let that translation issue trip you up. I love her response. Do whatever he says. And so he does. There's huge potential for shame, but Jesus intervenes. And so how does he intervene? Well, he takes nearby, we have these stone jars that are important detail. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews, uh, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding uh, uh, from 20 to 30 gallons. These massive stone jars, they're they're not wooden jars because they have to to be bacteria free. They're used for Jewish rites of ceremonial cleansing. No one would have confused these jars that are used for cleansing with jars that were for for, for drinking. These are the the jars that everyone washed up in for symbolically cleansing their guilt before they went into the temple, before they went into worship. It is quite strange that Jesus would would choose these six stone, uh, stone jars to turn into wine unless he was making a statement. As a matter of fact, it says that the servants ladle out the wine from the washing basin and they take it to the master of the banquet. No doubt if he knew where the water had come from, there's no, no chance he's t- putting it in his mouth. What does that even mean? <laughs> that he takes the the water that's used for ceremonial cleansing so that you can be ready to engage with your community so that you can be ready to interact with God and worship. This is what you need to, to purify yourselves from the mistakes that we made so that we can come into the presence of God and one another. He takes that ceremonial cleansing water, a massive amount of it, and he turns it into wine. Important detail. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So we have the stone jars. And then we have Jesus passing the wine through the hands of the servants. I think this is another important detail. Jesus could have done the miracle any way he chose. 
He chooses the cleansing jars. I think that's important. And he passes the, the change, the miracle wine through the hands of the servants. He doesn't, like Jesus could have gotten honor for himself by taking the wine directly to the master of the banquet or d- directly to the, broom, the groom and said, look what I've done. I've rescued your family from humiliation. Aren't you glad that you invited me? He completely stays out of the picture and he passes the miracle through the hands of the servant. It wasn't the best man. It wasn't one of his inner circle disciples. It wasn't his mother who asked for the miracle. It was the, the caterers. The people who were punching the clock, who were not, who were, whose feet were exhausted and tired, who probably wanted nothing more than to go home for the evening, who would have been forgotten in, in the rest of the situation. They were the only ones that could trace the miracle back to Jesus. The master of the banquet is shocked. He's like, maybe the groom's father splurged on a reserve day three case that I had no idea about. But the servants are the one who received the divine revelation that this is Jesus intervening and doing a miracle, passing through the hands of the servants. And the last thing is it is a fine vintage. It is, is, an, is amazing wine. Everyone brings out, this is right, this is the master of the banquet says this, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the best until now. That's, the miracle is this, the water became wine. That, I mean, it could be two buck chuck from Trader Joe's at this point. Water became wine, that's the miracle. But it doesn't just become wine. Back to the beginning, we have a God who's saying, no, this is new creation. This is teeming. This is abundant. This is intricate and beautiful, extravagant. The, art, the artistry here. Jesus goes with a perfectly aged vintage, the likes of which maybe no one in this setting before had, had tasted. This is not a stingy, utilitarian God who's driven by efficiency. This is a God of feasting, of love, and of laughter. This is Jesus, the creator of all, showing up on the scene for his first sign saying, God is wildly abundant. So I've already given some of it away, but those, those details I think are important. They're context that reveal beauty. And, the, and for, for the end, right, we have just a few minutes left. I want you to begin to answer the question with me. What have we seen revealed We've talked about the sort of plot points in a very short 11 verse story, a sign of God's, God being revealed. What is the glory being revealed? I think the first is we have a God of abundance. We've been headed there the whole time. We could have a God of utility. Some of us maybe even serve a God of utility who's very practical, who keeps the scales balanced, who's sort of fundamentally basically always disappointed with us, is kind of storming around with a long beard and a clipboard and saying, I really want to love you guys, but you just make it hard. No, we have a God of abundance, a God who's so far beyond utility, who's so far beyond our scarcity mentality, who's saying, I want to overflow. I want to flood into your life. I want to take, you need an extra bottle of wine. I want to give you 120 gallons. What kind of God do we serve? The shrewd businessman with eyes on the bottom line, the micromanager obsessed with your performance, a ruthless trainer who wants to give you the carrot just enough to keep you going? Or do you have a God whose grace never runs out? When you come to God in in need of help, in need of grace, you find that it, it literally never runs out. A God who never stops pursuing you. You have a bunch of narratives in the scripture that demonstrate this over and over again. I find most famously King David, after his worst failure, right? After his, his laziness put him out of, out of place where he was supposed to be, his, his lust overtakes him, he commits adultery, he commits murder, and he has this elaborate lie to cover it all up. Eventually he gets exposed. What's he gonna do? 
right? This is old covenant. He's supposed to go wash himself in the basins. He's supposed to make the sacrifices. He, and he, he cries out for a type of mercy that, that would have been unheard of. And he receives it. And he receives it. And he starts praying things like this. This guy who failed in such a profound way, who comes to God in need of grace, does he find utilitarian God? Does he find a God of scarcity mentality who's, who's only giving out mercy and smidgens? No. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is the God who can take the end of the wine and bring 120 gallons. Who can, who can take your stumbling, trembling confession of brokenness and need and, and wash it clean and make you new and stand you up straight and say, you're my son, you're my daughter. This is your true identity, walk in freedom. Whose patience cannot be exhausted. Whose favor is not based on our past performances or our promises to be better. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We have a God of abundance. We also have a God who is changing how we get clean. Right, we've already mentioned it, but the old the old system the old system was uh, re- religious achievement. You bring your sacrifice, you say your prayers, you wash yourself in, in the thing, and then you're ready to come to God. Jesus is flipping the order; he's coming to us. He's saying these basins aren't going to be necessary in the way they were necessary previously. I'm going to be the one who makes you clean. This is Jesus who who uh, right when Jesus heals the lepers, right? They were totally. Uh, you know, ostracized from their community. Jesus comes into contact with them, with that, with, which, which should mean that then he has to also go through the cleansing rituals to be made clean. He heals the lepers and he says, go through the appropriate rituals so you can be enfolded back into community and then he just moves on. For the first time ever, the, unclean, the clean comes in contact with the unclean and the clean makes the unclean clean. That's such a simple sentence, but you get it. He's, he's, he's changing the game. He's saying, I'm going to come and remove your sin. I'm going to come and change the way you're purified. My majesty, God's majesty is not list, uh, limited to any system of human control. These are the new wineskins that Jesus has come to, br- to, to, to bring. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to move quickly here because I want us to, to consider this with, with, our, with our hearts, not just with our minds. He's changing the ways that, that we are made clean, and he's also defeating shame. Our common human impulse is to wallow in our shame. We fear our secrets being, being found out. We remember our embarrassments far more vividly than our triumphs. We can quickly forget every kind word that's, that's been spoken to us before the, our employee mentions the growth area in our, our, in our, our performance review. Jesus doesn't reveal a God who turns a blind eye to our worst moments. He's not pretending. Jesus reveals a God who sees us even more clearly than we, than we see ourselves, but he still chooses to define us by grace and love. He searches the, our, our, our heart and he shines a light in our darkest corners. He knows our mind. He knows your thoughts before you do. He, he has this exposing light so that nothing is hidden. And, and think of the freedom of that to say, there are no secrets. There's no need for them. He sees and knows anyway. 
And yet once everything is known, he says, I want to heal you. I want to cleanse you. I want to forgive you. I want to embrace you. I want your shame to be defeated. Right? So much of our religious life can be defined by what we, we fail in some repeated way or some way that, that, that has become a habit for us or some way that maybe even shocks us. And what we do is we think, I'm going to wallow in this shame. I'm going to carry around this guilt because I know God forgives me, but it's going to take me a little while to forgive myself. Now, functionally, that, that feels like natural and normal, but what it is essentially saying is my standard is a little bit higher than God's. And God has sent Jesus to the cross who said, it is finished, and everything necessary for me to be forgiven and cleansed and redeemed has been done, but I'm still going to wallow around in my shame just a little bit more because I'm going to add to the cross Even in his first sign, Jesus is foretelling, this God is a God who defeats shame. There's a prayer of confession that Walter Brueggemann uh, has at the end of one of his books. I just want to read it to you now because I think this just says, it says, says this so well. Almighty God, from whom no secrets are hid, we rush not to the next phrase, but linger there. We are rich conundrums of secrets. We weave a pattern of lies in order to be well thought of. We engage in subterfuge about our truth. We carry old secrets too painful to utter, too shameful to acknowledge, too burdensome to bear, of failures we cannot undo, of alienations we regret but cannot fix, of grandiose exhibits we cannot curb. And you know them. You know them all. And so we take a deep sigh in your presence, no longer needing to pretend and cover up and deny We have a God who has come to defeat our shame. And the last thing I'll mention is we have a God who reverses the hierarchy. The passing the wine through the servants is a first last moment. The first will be last, the last will be first. It's a moment to say he's come to uplift those who are on the the margins, those who've been forgotten, those who, and the human status anxiety model would be left out of praise and achievement. And he comes to say, I'm passing my kingdom through you. I'm putting the bread in your hands for it to be broken. I'm putting the wines in your ladle for it to be shared. I'm passing my kingdom through the hands of those who no one would expect. I'm using the foolish to confound the wise. I'm using the weak to lead the strong. 